Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. On this week's show, Adam has a conversation with Lindsay Behrens. Lindsay is the president of business operations for the Washington Spirit. She joined the Spirit after serving as the vice president of business development for the National Women's Soccer League. At the National Women's Soccer League, Lindsay led the sale of the broadcast rights to both CBS and Twitch. Lindsay also helped secure several league-wide partnership deals with companies like Google, Verizon, Secret Deodorant, and BarkBox. Prior to joining the National Women's Soccer League front office, Lindsay served as a vice president and strategic business development and general counsel for the Utah Royals FC, Real Salt Lake, and Real Monarchs. Additionally, Lindsay was Real Salt Lake's alternate governor on Major League Soccer's Board of Governors. Coming to the Spirit is returned to the nation's capital for Lindsay, who previously lived in the D.C. area, where she spent time as a union activist and later a member of the Obama administration in the White House Office of Management and Budget. Lindsay is a native of Centerville, Utah, and a graduate of the University of Utah and Yale Law School. Lindsay has such an interesting career path, both inside and outside of sports. So we hope you all enjoy this conversation with Lindsay Barrett's. Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With us today is Lindsay Behrens from the Washington Spirit. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Great to have you on. So uh, it'd be great for our audience to learn a little bit more about your background and your experience and how you got to the Washington Spirit. It's a long and twisty journey. (laughs) My background is not in sports. I am a lateral into this space in the last three years. My background is in activism and politics and law. So I started my career as a union organizer, working on helping workers form unions at work, mostly in the healthcare industry, working with registered nurses in the Midwest. And then I went to law school and clerked after law school in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and then worked in corporate law for many years, mostly in New York City with the law firm Cleary Gottlieb, practicing mergers and acquisitions. And then I went into the Obama administration. I was a White House fellow at the White House Office of Budget and Management. And then I went back to New York City and decided I wanted to try something entrepreneurial. And I love theater and the arts. So I started a digital media company that covered arts and culture, theater and performance. I ran that for about two years and then exited into a larger digital media company that covered the same thing, but nationwide. I also hosted a podcast for four years called the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. Um, it still exists today, although there's not a lot of theater happening. Um, so my colleagues who operate it hopefully will restart it after theater returns. Then the, uh, let's see, 2015, now we're up to. Um, my friend, a friend of mine for many years ago, ran for mayor of my hometown, which is Salt Lake City, Utah. And she asked me to run her campaign, and she's an incredible human, 
was the first openly gay person elected to public office in the state of Utah many years ago, was elected to the state legislature. She served for over a decade, then retired when she adopted a child, and then wanted to run for that position. And she asked me to run her campaign. And I think she's so wonderful that I said yes. So I returned to Utah and lived there for a year and got her elected to be the mayor of Salt Lake City, the capital city of the state of Utah. And then I left Utah vowing, as I do every time I leave Utah, I will never return <laughs> back to New York City and uh, returned to the arts, worked in a consulting capacity, worked with a nonprofit uh, that was trying to bring impact investing to arts and culture, and also did a large digital media project for the public theater. And then it was 2018, and I, like many people, was very concerned about the state of our country and considering what to do about that. And my first instinct was, as I had many times before, to return to politics. But I am a true believer when it comes to doing good. <laughs> and politics is often a difficult space for people to work in who believe deeply about uh, their values because compromises are required. And every time I do a campaign, it takes a lot of time for me to recover from it. Um, like a lot of time. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a conversation for a different mental health podcast. Um, and so I was, I was, you know, having what I don't know, could charitably be described as a midlife crisis and thinking, you know, what can I do? What's a job I could do where I feel like I'm doing good and living my values and contributing to social justice and social impact. But I can also put to work my skill set, which is deal making. And at that time that I was having this conversation with myself, an NWSL team was started in my hometown, the Utah Royals. And I was just struck by the impact that that team could have in a place where women are still very much unequal. We have the largest equality gap, one of the largest pay gaps for women and men, uh, much worse for women of color. Um, mental health is a really big problem for women in Utah. And I just thought how incredible it would be to have this group of professional women who are hardworking and strong and fought and lost and were resilient in the face of losing. And I just thought it would be so amazing. You know, when I grew up in Utah, I didn't have any professional women in my orbit. My role model was Murphy Brown, a fictional TV character. And I thought about that and I'm a huge women's soccer fan. You know, I was at that sort of ripe age in 99 when the world, the women's world cup, uh, the, the U S women's national team won the world cup. And it was such a big deal and had been following the sport for ages and had traveled to see national team games, had traveled from New York city to Rutgers field to see sky blue, the NWSL team that played there at the time now Gotham FC. And I thought, this is just incredible. Maybe, maybe that's, what I could do. Maybe that's the perfect intersection of what I care about. I think that the potential for social influence in women's soccer is just unparalleled. And I also think that the financial potential for the sport is largely untapped. We're starting to see that realized more and more now, but you know, in 2018, if Deloitte hadn't started the Utah Royals, that league probably would have collapsed. 
And so I called my friend, the mayor, and I said, do you know the owner of this team? Can you introduce me? I want to work there. And she was like, well, (laughs) really? Like, what do you know about this? And I said, you know, I just want to be inside the organization. I just want to see all the parts of it and how it fits together and how I could be useful. And she said, do you mean like an internship? And I said, yeah, but let's call it executive in training. <laughs> and she was like, okay, I'll introduce you, but then it's up to you to talk your way into this organization. So I had a phone call and I hit it off with the owner. And uh, then I went to Utah and we met in person and hit it off. And she said, okay, well, we need a lawyer. So you could be our team's lawyer. And I said, I don't want to be the lawyer. I stopped practicing law back in 2011. Like I've moved on. I have all these other experience and skill sets. Why don't we find a different role for me? And he said, well, we'll call you the VP of legal. And I said, okay, I'll be the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I joined as uh, the lawyer. Um, But actually, that was about half my job. The other half of my job was doing a digital media project for uh, the team based on my experience of having started a digital media company. Uh, we wanted to start a digital media company that covered soccer in Utah. And uh, that project didn't get off the ground for a whole bunch of complex legal reasons uh, based on the structure of MLS. And then I said, well, you know, the reason I joined this league is because I love the women's team and I, I love the NWSL and I, I want to make sure that league thrives. And it was operating in a very resource-constrained environment at the time, had very limited resources. And so Deloitte agreed that I could use a part of my time to work on league projects. So I was essentially seconded or volunteered. I don't know how you want to describe it. Um, But I was allowed to spend a lot of my time, including my free time, uh, working on league matters. And initially, I did a strategy project for the league where I called it NWSL 2.0. And it was about how do we go from where we are now to where we want to be. And a lot of it focused on the commercial side of the organization. And I talked to all the different stakeholders and I basically put together this strategy plan. And that took about six months, which took us up to the point where uh, we were at the Women's World Cup in 2019. And at that time, there were very limited resources being dedicated to generating revenue at the league level. But on the heels of the World Cup, there was an increased interest in the league. And so uh, I was again loaned or volunteered to essentially run commercial operations at the league. And we were able to do the first ever internally generated sponsorship contracts at the league, uh, deals with BarkBox, Google, and Secret Deodorant. And then I ran the process with a committee of board governors members that led to the CBS and Twitch broadcast deals for the league. Uh, We hired Octagon to help us with that and ran a very thorough process that resulted in those two deals, which are the proverbial game changers for us, right? Uh, Last year, even in the face of the pandemic, we saw our ratings triple over the most watched NWSL game in the history of the league. The second we put our game on CBS broadcast, that happened, right? The largest broadcast network in the country. 
And then Twitch, which is an incredibly innovative streaming platform, makes our games available anywhere in the world for free. Uh, we also have 24 games a year that we put on Twitch that are available exclusively in the US. So at that point that those deals were done, I said, somebody should really be doing this full time. They shouldn't be splitting it with their job as the lawyer at a team. And I would love for it to be me, but it doesn't have to be. But um, really, we need to hire staff who are focused on the commercial side of the league. And they agreed. And so they did hire me. So at that point, I jumped from being the uh, volunteer <laughs> head of the commercial side of the organization to being a staff member. Uh, and then shortly after that, we hired Lisa Baird as a commissioner, which is another giant leap forward. Um, then, unfortunately, the pandemic hit and we shut down operations. Um, but Lisa developed the Challenge Cup concept and we were able to activate on our new broadcast deals, which is very exciting. And we were also able to bring on some larger and new partners to the league. So we did a multi-year deal with Verizon and uh, Google, another Google deal that was specific to the Challenge Cup and then expanded the Procter & Gamble and secret deodorant relationships. So I guess as they say, the rest is history. So I told you that was gonna be a very long, <laughs> it was a very long journey, but, oh, I didn't, I, I missed the last step. All right. So then after a year at the league, uh, I was recruited to join the Washington Spirit as the president of business operations. And I've been there for about a month now and I'm having a great time. Great. Well, there's a lot to cover and you did cover a lot. And that's that's uh, always an interesting part of hearing people's background. And the, there's a couple of things I wanted to focus on first before we get directly into the uh, NWSL experience, particularly that relates to the students, which is you mentioned in your background, whether it was with uh, politics or um, law, that you're a deal maker. So how has that deal making kind of experience that you had before you got into sports impacted your career in sports? Well, a lot of people are surprised when I say this, but to me, campaign work and deal making are the same. <laughs> they are very intense, high energy situations where you are working with a team and everybody needs to be working in sync. And then there's an endpoint for an election, whether it's a union election or a political election, you have a vote and an outcome is determined. Likewise, with deal making, it's not as definitive, but typically you either close the deal or you don't. And then you start over with a whole new project. And for me, somebody with a somewhat short attention span, <laughs> that's the perfect work environment. Very intense, all hands-on, very team-oriented, and then there's a conclusion and you take a break, or at least you try to take a deep breath. And that is, that's politics, that's union organizing, that's M&A, and that's sponsorship. Now, there's an M&A in sponsorship and politics and union organizing. If you win, <laughs> there's more work to come. And that's just as important as getting the deal done. And a lot of people don't focus on that. You know, they're sort of deal people and they're operations people. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy straddling both. I really enjoy the aftermath of the deal or the election and figuring out, okay, this was our ambition. These were our promises. This is where our plans. 
Now let's make those things a reality. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy to be back at a team is you're, you're so much closer to the execution. You're closer to the community, to the players, to the competition. You can be invested in the games in a way that is just not appropriate at the league level. And that's what drew me back to being on the team side. Yeah. And, and that definitely makes sense. And it's a really interesting point you made about uh, um, from deal-making to execution. Um, obviously you didn't make a lot of deals at the league level and we'll talk about those in more detail, but um, to date, how kind of, how have you seen that? Is that a, a kind of point of view that you've seen shared maybe across either at the NWCL level or the team level that people share that kind of perspective or how hard is it to potentially navigate the deal making to operationalize? It's really challenging. Every organization I've been a part of uh, on the sporting side, which now equals three, and three years of experience. So take that with a grain of salt, I suppose, because there are people who have been doing it for decades. But going from completing the deal to executing the deal is a very precarious transition. Mm -hmm. And there are as many ways to set that up organizationally as there are to skin a cat. I don't know if that phrase is out of vogue, maybe. (laughs) Maybe that's not a politically correct statement to say. I would never have never done that, just to be clear. Well, that's on the record, though, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's so many ways to structure your organization, and there are pros and cons to everyone, and so much of it is about personal feelings and making sure the personalities fit together. It's really challenging, but... It's essential to success. If you you can put together the best deal in the world worth lots of money to our organization, and if we don't deliver that value, we're not doing what we committed to do. We're damaging that relationship with that brand in particular, and we are making it impossible to do future deals. We will have damaged our reputation in the market and make it very, very difficult to continue to form relationships. And I want to build on that in a second, but I, before we go, particularly in the context of uh, work in sports, but before we do that, you mentioned, obviously, in your part of your background is in digital media, starting a digital media company. Um, clearly, digital media now, particularly in sports, is a huge component. We're talking about even working on digital media projects while you're in sports. But can you talk more about, again, like what digital media was like when you first started into it and how has that background experience, you know, you mentioned also about starting a podcast, right? That was a, a relatively novel concept that's become significantly more mainstream now, but how your background in digital media also helped contribute to your success now in the sports industry. I think a lot of people who are my peers, not to out my age too much, are uh, find digital media a little bit foreign, even still. And so I think it gives me a big advantage in having the life and professional experience that I have and having spent a lot of time working in the digital realm and understanding those tools, understanding the power of those tools and how to optimize them. So I think a lot of senior leadership in sports is still a little bit mystified by that space and just rely on kind of junior staff who are digital natives to handle it. And as a result of that, I think there is oftentimes a disconnect between the larger organizational strategy 
and the execution of what are very likely the second most valuable assets you have in a club after your players themselves. And that is hopefully an advantage I bring to uh, the spirit and other jobs that I've had. And I think, you know, just specifically part of understanding digital media is understanding how rapidly it changes. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing my digital media company, Tumblr was huge. (laughs) Tumblr page. All of our fans had Tumblr pages. F yeah plays, F yeah Sondheim. You know, these are like our buddies. We don't have a Tumblr page at the Spirit, right? right. TikTok. TikTok's even not, not the newest generation of app right? There are all these new things coming up. You have to constantly be innovating in that space or you'll just be irrelevant. So that, that actually the digital native content, one of the things we talk about in the, in the book that we feature in my class at Northwestern is this idea of everybody having to be the CTO and not necessarily knowing every single technology, but how to approach technology. So um, you mentioned before about some of your peers. So what are the types of questions that your peers, particularly the senior leadership at these sports organizations, what are the types of questions they're asking you and how are they relying on your experience and how are you communicating it to people who maybe aren't digital natives and maybe are a little bit, um, you know, this is a little bit foreign to them in terms of understanding how digital media could be the second most valuable asset. Probably the biggest thing is how resource intensive it is. I think there's this idea that you get an intern, you give her mm-hmm. all of the passwords and she'll just take care of it. <laughs> and not understanding that behind whoever that person is that presses go or send or whatever, there needs to be an army of people. There are graphic designers, there are videographers, there are editors, there are you know copy editors, there are writers. There has to be a large staff who is dedicated to feeding that beast. Mm -hmm. And it just, I think it's just incomprehensible if you're not, if you haven't been close up and next to it to realize how much effort goes into a pithy 180 character. I don't even remember the character limit on Twitter anymore. It's so big, but you used to be smaller, you know? So anyway, my point being, these very short posts that seem so effortless, so carefree, require a tremendous amount of effort and expense. And I think that it's just really hard to wrap your mind around how many resources you need to devote to that part of your organization and how hard it is. You know, I, I hear, I have heard many times like, I have this idea, you guys go execute it. And it's like, okay, you want us to build a web page and you want there to be video on it and you want there to be like flashing graphics and you want it to like morph and link to these other things. It's like, we don't just snap our fingers and create these things. Like they're very talented, very skilled people on staff, but what you're talking about doing is going to take some time. And I think people are often startled at the budgetary figures that are attached to pretty small pieces of content. You know, it's like you create a fancy video. We put out a fancy video yesterday. Cost some money to put that thing together. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think this goes back to, and again, we want to delve into that more, particularly given 
uh, your current responsibilities and particularly like how you think about value, like once you've created the cost, how you think about value. But I did want to touch on one other thing in terms of your background, particularly how you got your job at Real Salt Lake. You were mentioning leveraging your network, approaching, because this is also a part of, right? You wouldn't have been in the position to talk to the senior leaders in the industry if you hadn't gotten the first job in the industry. So, and that's one of the things we talked to our students about is, you know, the best way to be in sports is to be in sports, right? That's the best way to get a job in sports. So, you know, you mentioned like, well, maybe it'll be an internship, but how did you really approach those conversations? How did you know, you know, you had obviously had a very uh, um, successful career outside of sports. How did you take that? And how did you kind of parlay that into the real conversations to get the job and move forward at Real Salt Lake and get the job in the industry? We could spend the rest of the time talking about this because it's so important today how we build networks and we maintain contact with them and we use them to our advantage, but also that we support other people in our networks. So I'll digress for just a second. So when I was at the White House, I had a very fancy job. I was surrounded by very fancy people and we were always meeting even fancier people. And every time, well, not every time, but frequently people would say, make sure you're using this opportunity to network. And this word was always getting thrown around, network, network, or who are you networking with, what are you doing? And I was like, I literally don't know what you're talking about. And I'm in my mid thirties, you know, I've like had some career success, no idea what these people are talking about. And one day I was in this cab with uh, three other of my fellow fellows who were all men, um, but not white men, not none of them. Well, no, one of them was a white man. And uh, they were talking about their networking. And I said, what are you talking about? Are you saying that you're just calling up people or sending them emails and saying, hi, I'm Lindsay Behrens. I'm a White House fellow. After my White House fellowship, I'm interested in starting a business in the arts and culture space. And I was in my head, I'm thinking, that is not what you're talking about. I know it's not what you're talking about. And they said, yes, that's exactly what we're talking about. And I thought, no way, that does not work. No way am I gonna send somebody an anonymous email no matter what I say in that email, they're going to respond and say, yeah, let's get together. Like that doesn't happen. And I said, and in my head, I was thinking, and I will prove it. So I already had this idea that I wanted to work in arts and culture after the fact, and that I wanted it to be entrepreneurial and a tech startup. And so I emailed the like executive director of the public theater and the executive director of the Kennedy Center. And I said, this is what I basically just said earlier. And I thought, what a waste of time. Send it off, done. Never heard back from the guy from the Kennedy Center, nothing. The executive director of the public theater wrote me back, hi, Lindsay, it's really nice to meet you. This is very interesting. The next time you're in New York, I'd love to get together. I I could not have been more shocked at that response. I was stunned, absolutely stunned that that person A, reply, and B, said, yeah, the next time you're in New York, let's get together. And so I did. The next time I was in New York, I sent him an email. I'm in town. We had breakfast. And did anything come of that? No, nothing came of that right away, right? This is a person who I 
spent the next five years getting to know first through my own company where we covered the public theater as a, as a journalism, journalism outlet. Uh, I saw him at his events, would say hello to him. Um, I would, uh, you know, seek him out at, when I, if I saw him at the Shakespeare in the park, I was a, I was a, what they call a young partner at the public. Five years later, I got a consulting contract to do a digital media strategy for the public theater. And I just, looking back on that, I'm so glad I had that conversation in that cab that day. And it just said, yes, that is it. And I was like, oh, I learned so much. And I, if I hadn't developed that skill set, I would never have succeeded as an entrepreneur. I would never have succeeded as a consultant in the arts and culture space. I would never have gotten this job in sports. And a lot of times when we talk about networking, we're very focused on here's how you do outreach to get benefits for yourself. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is if anybody sends me an email, including an, a LinkedIn message and says, I'm interested in the white house fellowship program. Would you mind talking to me? I, absolutely say yes to every single person. And I've said that on other public speaking engagements. And you know how many emails I've gotten like that over the last over 10 years, three. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like people think that networking is about how do I benefit myself, but anybody who's involved in networking has to be uh, totally committed to paying it forward and returning the favor. And that's a really important lesson to understand that you're not asking for something that you wouldn't have given in return if it was asked of you. And I think when you uh, make that connection in your brain, it makes the outreach and the asking of favors much easier. Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually, one of the things, the only thing I would add on top of that is that in networking, you actually want to think about it. Why is it beneficial for somebody like you to talk about the White House Fellow Program? Like what's in it for for you, right? If you're asking for somebody's time, how are you providing benefit? And I think that's also something it's it, that's totally in line with what you're saying. And yes, that is something we could talk about in more detail. Uh, I think it is potentially its own separate podcast, but I do want to jump into the... Uh, Let me just say one more thing. Go ahead. Absolutely. Women, the boys are doing this. The boys <laughs> are all doing this. So you better be doing it too. Yeah. Men, women, you know, that's what I always tell students. Everybody is using every advantage they possibly have to move forward in their career. You need to do that and building a network. And that's one of the things we emphasize in our program as well is this is an opportunity for you to build your network. People do want to talk to students in particular. That's an advantage because people do want to give back to students, particularly and particularly in our program. Now, whether you're in our program or not, listen to the podcast, I think the networking advice is still completely valid right it's make sure you're um doing something that benefit you know make sure this isn't just for you what's the benefit for the speaker how can you pay it forward and how can you move that forward and again i think this does build in nicely actually to your the job at real salt lake i mean the job with uh in uh with the nwsl and the utah royals is so once you got there right you know you were talking about how you were on loan and eventually moved you know you talked about how you got the job at the vice president what was your experience like just moving literally moving from um, not working in sports to working in sports, what was the learning curve and what were the things that you saw just when you first got there in terms of, um, oh, this is what it's like kind of to work for a sports team. I may have had a perception, but now I know more of what it's like to work in sports. 
Sports organizations are in many ways not different from any other entertainment industry organization. I do think that there can be some casualness in sports that is not necessarily healthy. I think it's very important that anyone that's part of an organization have realized that they are a business and they have the same obligations from a human resources perspective that every other organization has. But for the most part, it's just like every other business and you just have to learn how the pieces fit together and what's important. You know, I didn't know much about the world of sponsorship before I got into sports, but it's deal-making like any other deal. Um, I didn't know much about ticket sales, but you know, that's a sales process. <laughs> Managing the sporting side is much different. Um, and I imagine that people who work on that side of the organization would have a very different perspective than I do. Um, I have observed a lot that side of the business and, you know, have opinions about it and such, but have never worked on the sporting side, have never managed players and never managed a, that sort of competition. Yeah. And I think that that makes sense. And I get a lot of those people we're focused on the business side of sports. And I think it's a very good point to say like, this is the business of sports is a business, right? We need to focus on core business metrics um, and how we commercialize business. And that does, um, I did want to drill into your experience directly, particularly at the league level. Um, you know, you talked about the game changing uh, media rights deal. So but we'll start there, then we'll move into sponsorship. But with the media rights deals, like you said, with CBS and with Twitch specifically, those were novel deals. They drove significant value. So from your perspective, you called that a game changer. I know you called that in the media, other places a game changer. From your perspective, why is this a game changer? And why does this make, why is this so valuable? Why are these deals so valuable for the NWSL? So the first thing to do with these deals is to put them in context. Yes. So we were in the market on the heels of the U.S. women's national team winning the World Cup. And they deserve a lot of credit for these deals. If they had not had the success that they had and brought women's soccer to a crescendo in this country, I do not believe we would have gotten the exact deals that we got. But I think the really important thing about the process that we went through when we shopped these, when I sh when we shopped our media rights, is in some ways we took a very traditional approach to it. Mm -hmm. We were confident that our rights had value and that there should be competition for them in the marketplace. And we defined our values in terms of accessibility and reach and of course revenue. And we went into the market in a very traditional way. Octagon talked to everyone. They did not assume that because professional club women's soccer had never been on a major TV network, that those outlets wouldn't be interested in our games. So just the fact that we approached CBS was totally revolutionary because Everything that we had focused on prior to that was ESPN and Fox. Now we talked to them too, 
we talk to all of the streaming services, but having a conversation with Twitch, which at the time had virtually no uh, live traditional sports on their service. Again, another very out of the box approach to make. But one that you would make if you were shopping a men's property. And so I think having done that process whereby we talked to everyone, we received several indications of interest that created some competition for our property, enabled us to create the ideal package for us that weighed revenue, reach, and accessibility. And, you know, there are people who critique the deal as people are free to critique whatever they like for the fact <laughs> that we have some of our games on Paramount Plus, which is behind a paywall. But they're holding the NWSL to a standard that doesn't apply to any sport <laughs> in this country. <laughs> a lot of sports, not a lot. Every sport, if you want to watch every game in that league, at some point you are paying money to someone to see those games, right? I live in Utah. I'm moving to DC, just to clear up any confusion. I currently live in Utah. I cannot watch a jazz game to save my life. I, I, it's on some like obscure local channel that I've literally tried to get, like pay money to obtain what is supposed to be an over-the-air channel. Can't get it. I can't sign up for, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the system where you can uh, get every NBA game? Oh, uh, NBA TV. Or no, not NBA TV. It's League Pass. Gosh, complete brain fog. Okay. Um, I, signed, I tried to sign up for League Pass. Blacked out in my area. I, I, unless a game is on TNT or ESPN or never going to happen, but ABC, I cannot watch a jazz game. You know, our games, yes, if you want to watch every single game in our league, you are going to have to have either cable and or, or I shouldn't say or, and see Paramount Plus, which costs, I don't know, I think it's like $6 a month. You know, you should pay for our games. Our games have value. We are a grown up league. If you're going to pay to watch the NFL and the NF uh, and, and this and, and and NBA and all the other ones, why should you get all of our games for free? There should be revenue accruing to our organization as well. So yes, I did those deals. So I take that particularly personally. <laughs> But I really believe that. And I believed it when we were doing the deal. And I knew there would be criticism of the fact that some of our games required a cable package, but so does ESPN. And you, you mentioned this before in terms of communicating to ownership about these, you know, about uh, digital media, you know, streaming content, particularly on Twitch or Paramount Plus, maybe it's um, part of that conversation. So what was that conversation going back saying we wanted to you know, put these games on Twitch or some amount of the games would be on Twitch and Paramount Plus, which is maybe even CBS All Access, right? It's maybe not something some of the ownership had heard or was as familiar with as you are. So what was that conversation like? I appreciate that you're suggesting that owners are more out of touch than I am because that's just <laughs> not the case. 
<laughs> I mean, I was learning it too, right? I yeah. didn't have at the time CBS All Access, um, and I certainly had never watched a minute on Twitch. Um, so we were all going through the process together, and like I said, I was guy, I was leading the process, but I was working very closely with at the committee of owners, and we just we just moved in lockstep. And uh, it, this this was not the owner. The, this was not the only option on the table at the time we had to decide. Um, but it was very strongly supported as the primary option. And then you, you talk about the NWSL being a grown up league and you've talked about obviously some of the partners that you were negotiating with and you've negotiated with at a league level. So what were those conversations like, particularly whether it was in light of, or before even the media rights deals that you signed were in place, you know, you talk about Google, Verizon, uh, uh, secret. Those are obviously major companies that are, you know, major global organizations. So how did those conversations go? And what, what, what were the conversations like to get those types of companies involved at the NWSL? Well, rather than speak to those conversations specifically, I'll just sort of yeah. speak abstractly around yeah, exactly. uh, sponsorship, not just at the NWSL, but my experience at um, the Washington spirit as well. And I think Great. it's very widely applicable to women's sports. And as you know, there are valuation tools out there that rely very heavily on a CPM basis. How many eyeballs are there divided by the number? This is the value of that asset. And when you use those tools, women's sports have value. They bring value to the table. Our audience has have grown in size substantially, ever, ever growing at higher and higher rates. So we, they bring value to the table when you're using a very traditional model. But women's sports also bring other types of value to the table. And until recently, that has not been recognized. So we did some uh market uh fan testing when we when i was at the nwsl and what we found is that people think the nwsl supports women stands for dei stands for equality and they think that same thing about our corporate partners and in the year 2021 there's not a business on this planet. Well, maybe a couple outside. I won't name names, but you know who I'm talking about. That don't care about women. Don't care about supporting women. Don't want to even be known as supporting women, right? Everybody wants to be known for believing in equality, for believing in equal opportunity, for supporting women. It's the Me Too era. How else does a company authentically communicate those values other than supporting a woman's sports property. There are, very, there are very few ways. I mean, you can stand up and say it, but words are meaningless. What are the actions you're taking to support women when you say you support women? And one of the ways you can do that very authentically is by being a sponsor of the Washington Spirit or the NWSL or the WNBA. And yet, if you look at the market, over 99% of sponsorship dollars go to men's sports. So there is currently in the market a disconnect between what a lot of brands are saying and their actions. 
And so when we're valuing women's properties, we need to account for intangible ways that we deliver very real value. And that kind of reputational positivity should have a dollar sign attached to it. It should not be something that brands are getting for free from women's sports properties. Yeah, obviously, this is something I agree with. This is the reason we originally connected is a post that I wrote about this specific topic. So I completely agree with it. Again, I think maybe it's its own topic, but we're getting towards the end of the time. So I just want to cover two final things because, uh, and hopefully we'll have you back on maybe to dive into some of the things that we said could be their own separate podcast. But uh, the the last, one of the questions that we wanted to cover is, you know, particularly in the context of these sponsorships, is the Challenge Cup and is the impact that COVID, not just uh, the immediate impact, but the potential long-term impact of COVID um, on uh, the NWSL and potentially even women's sports more generally. So how have you seen or what have you seen as the potential, the medium and long-term impacts of COVID on, on the sport and, and potentially on women's sports more generally? It's a very strange time. You know, we are all going through tremendous difficulty and just oddly in this moment of hardship, we are thriving as a, as a league and as a team at the Washington Spirit. It's very counterintuitive, but the Challenge Cup made the NWSL the first professional team sport to return to live competition in the United States. And all credit to Commissioner Baird for having the idea and executing the idea flawlessly. And that brought us a lot of attention. And the great thing about last year was that in addition to the Challenge Cup, we added on the fall series, which was another set of games that were broadcast on CBS. And, or some of those games were broadcast on CBS. And we were, so we were able to see that it wasn't just the moment of return to sports, but actually it was an ongoing interest in the sport on a very accessible network and building on the momentum. So we had great ratings on our first game. We had even better ratings on our championship game from the Challenge Cup. And then we were able to hold several hundred thousand people per game as the, as the quote unquote season went on. And so that momentum will hopefully carry into this season as well. But the other thing that I think was an advantage for women's sports is that our fan base tends to be younger and more online. So our fan base is already there. You know, we have one of the most interesting Facebook groups I've ever been a part of is the NWSL supporters group on Facebook. Thousands of people on this group and incredibly active. It's independent. It's not it's not connected uh, directly to the league. Conversation, engagement there. We were already engaging with our fans in a digital way. And I think that during the pandemic, all sports were forced to up the level of digital engagement, but we were already doing it. And we expanded it throughout the course of the pandemic, you know. 
the Red Stars had their coach reading bedtime stories on Twitch and the Sky Blue, now Gotham, they had, you know, trivia nights. We at the Spirit had happy hours once a week. And I think that just solidified the digital connection between our teams and our fans in a way that I think is going to carry on into the future, even when, even once we are able to get together in person again. And I think that's going to be a very valuable foundation to build from. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's definitely right. And again, obviously something we do want to talk about uh, more in the future, but um, last question for you is, is a question we ask all of our guests as well is, you know, this podcast is listened to and geared towards a student audience. So um, one of the things we like to ask our guests, particularly those who uh, already achieved success in the industry is, you know, what are you looking for in a hire? If you're hiring somebody for a role at the Washington Spirit um, or potentially previously at the NWSL, what are the types of qualities, traits? What are you looking for in a candidate um, when you're looking to hire somebody? This may seem obvious, but you'd be surprised how many interviews I conduct where um, the answer goes awry. Do you like women's soccer and who are your favorite players and teams? <laughs> and if you only name three players who are very well known, not a good look. So I really recommend whatever the sport is, uh, whatever the team is or the league, you know, if you are not organically a fan of that, do a little research in advance and be prepared to answer very specific questions. You do not need to know the entire roster. You don't need to know the history. Um, I mean, the history. You should probably know a little history, especially really important things that have happened within the past five years or so. But do a little advanced work to make sure that you are able to speak fluently about the organization that you are joining. And then the other thing is, it's, it's just much more specific to, you know, the type of role you're interested in. And I think what you said earlier about, you know, the best way to work in sports is to be in sports, you know, when you're starting out at a junior level, unfortunately, it's very hard, the on ramps are very limited. And they do require an unfair amount of sacrifice on the part of young people looking to get into the industry. And we're trying to change that, but that's the state of the situation right now. And so if you're, if you're really passionate about it, you know, do whatever you can, but go into it eyes open about how difficult it can be to get that initial role and how unfortunately, you know, not well-paying it's likely going to be. Let's leave it on that note, <laughs> not the well-paying part, but, uh, <laughs> it's a, it is definitely something to consider. So, Lindsay, thank you for the time today. Thank you for joining the podcast. It was a great discussion. And we look forward to our audience hearing more about your insights uh, and about your career. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 